Today's podcast is with Daniel Whiteson, a particle physicist at UC Irvine, also the host of the popular podcast, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe. All right, let's just get right into the episode. All right, man. Well, thanks for coming on today. I'm excited to have someone on that is in the fields and kind of in the more, you know, your professor and, you know, physicist yourself. So I'm really excited to explore these topics with someone who has a background in history in this area. And so I would just love to just straight go into it. You know, Universe a Game podcast, kind of the gist is, is that the universe might be a game. And one of those main tenet theories that goes along with that is kind of the holographic principle. So how do you see the holographic principle and the possibility of the universe being holographic? Yeah, well, let's get right into it, huh? Um, I love, <laughs> yeah. first of all, the idea that the universe could be a game, right? Like somebody out there is constructing this for us to explore. I personally think of the universe not as a game, but more like a mystery novel. You know how detectives and mystery novels are like assembling clues and trying to figure out like what happened or what the story is. To me, that's what the universe is. And whether it was built by super intelligent aliens for, you know, to test us or not, it's still a fun puzzle, right? And so for me, it's all about solving this puzzle. How does the universe work? What is it made out of? What is the story? What is the, you know, let's solve this murder mystery and see what's going on in the universe. Um, and everything we've developed, everything we're doing is just to try to answer those questions. And, you know, like your listeners and everybody out there is curious, like, how does the universe work? What is this game that's been constructed for us or this, you know, random universe that happened to pop out of the multiverse? How does it all work? How do we figure it out? And so along the way, we come up with lots of crazy ideas. And one of them is this holographic universe, right? And the holographic universe theory is an idea that maybe our space is not the way that we perceive it. You know, we perceive the universe in a certain way. We experience three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. That sounds complicated, and dimensions are a word that's often misused in science fiction, right? People say, I'm traveling to another dimension, like a place where there are unicorns mm -hmm. and marshmallows and whatever. But mathematically, dimension, and scientifically, dimension is a different meaning. It's just a direction of motion. So you can move sideways, you can move forward, backwards, you can move up and down, right? Our space is three dimensions as far as we can tell. We don't know if there's only three dimensions. There might be 11 or 26. There are various theories of string theory that say it should have more dimensions and all sorts of fascinating theories of gravity that suggest maybe there could be more and we just haven't seen them yet. <clears throat> and that's really hard to wrap your mind around, you know, because you're just so used to thinking about space in three dimensions. But one of the deepest questions about space is like, what is it? Like, why is it here? Why does it have these dimensions? What are the rules of it? Um, because we've discovered weird things about space recently. Like Newton thought that space was nothing. It was just like, you know, the abstract backdrop, the stage on which the universe happened. It was absolute and infinite and unchanging. And now we know that's not true. We know that space can do weird things like space can bend, right? What is gravity? It's actually the bending of space. We know that space can expand. The whole universe is expanding. Like it's generating more space all the time. Space can ripple. We've seen gravitational waves, like waves in space. So we're sort of like fish scientists who've been swimming through the ocean for thousands of years, not even thinking about what it is we're swimming through and only now realizing, oh my gosh, this thing we're swimming through is something and it has properties and we could study it. And also 
may not be fundamental. That's a really fascinating concept. Like if you've only ever been in space, you imagine that space isn't a necessary thing for the universe. Like maybe space has to exist. That's what it means for the universe to be, that there is space, right? But as we probe it more deeply, we see that it's sort of like a thing with properties. It can do stuff. It can expand. It can contract. It can wiggle. We start to think about, well, maybe we don't know where space came from. And maybe it's possible that space didn't always exist, like that you could have a universe without space or that space could be fundamentally different from what we imagine. So that's where the holographic theory comes in. It says that you can construct mathematically a, a universe on a surface, like take a sphere, which is two dimensions in, in, in our space. You can mathematically construct the universe on that surface. And you can show that that mathematically is equivalent to having three-dimensional space inside the sphere. And that like a quantum theory on the surface is equivalent to a gravitational theory in the sphere. So, you know, what does that mean? <laughs> we don't know what it means. It's just like, it's cool math. But it might mean, it might mean like big might there that the dimensions of space we experience, three dimensions, might actually just be a two-dimensional surface with a bunch of crazy quantum stuff going on. And that's why it's called the holographic theory. Holograph meaning like you're making an apparent 3D image from something that's really just two dimensions. Like you look at a sheet of paper, it looks like there's something 3D there with depth, even though there is no depth. And, um, and you're creating this 3D impression from a 2D surface. So the idea is maybe the universe really is just two dimensions of space but there's weird quantum stuff going on uh, that gives you that like extra wiggle and you can transform two dimensions plus quantum wiggling into three dimensions. What does that mean about what space really is? Nobody has any idea, um, but it's easier to do some kinds of calculations in 2D space than 3D space. And so that's why they came up with it. Like Juan Maldacena at the Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton, one of the smartest dudes on the planet, came up with this trick and it allows us to do all sorts of calculations we just couldn't do before. You know, one of the big obstacles in physics is like, we don't know how to solve most of the problems. You know, you tell me like, what happens to a squirrel uh, riding a bicycle in a tornado, you know, on a roller coaster or whatever. I don't know. Like nobody can figure that out. It's too complicated. And most problems in physics are like that. So sometimes breakthroughs are made just when like, oh, here's a new tool. Here's a new mathematical trick we can use to do a calculation where couldn't before. So holographic theory doesn't tell us that like everything's a hologram or everything's fake. It just says, wow, there's lots of different ways to look at space. And one of them tells you that space might be really different from what you imagine, that our experience of it might not be the way that it is. Does any of that make sense? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And so I think a lot of people, when they hear the holographic principles, they think of Star Wars and they think of... <laughs> you know, projecting the, the projection, the hologram, and then you can like talk to the hologram or, you know, that's how they communicate. And so that's like kind of the way that I perceive that. And so when I think about a holographic universe, my brain intuitively goes to that space of that's what we're looking at with the universe. It's kind of a projection. And then the question then becomes, is then it, it a mathematical universe, you know, is everything based on math is everything. And then you take, take it a little bit further. And some people think that the universe really is just code. And so <laughs> do, do you see that kind of like ones and zeros at the uh, basis of the universe? 
That's a fascinating question. One I love thinking about, you know, is the universe mathematical? We don't know. Like we just don't know. And we can't really know, I think, until we meet intelligent aliens. Like our experience is the math is that the universe seems to be mathematical. What does that mean? It just means that we explain the universe in terms of math. Like math is the language of our science. You know, when we write F equals MA, we're describing what we see, observations, like you push on something and it accelerates. We describe that in terms of a mathematical equation. And that's like stunningly successful. It's incredibly successful. Weird actually historical um, nugget there is that Newton, who like invented F equals MA and the gravitational theory, didn't write things in terms of equations. He actually wrote things in terms of sentences because back then like algebra wasn't as developed. So if you read like his original treatise, he doesn't say F equals MA. He says like the force on an object is proportional to it's all these long-winded words. Um, so our notation mm-hmm. is a bit more, a bit more recent, but we've been stunningly successful in describing the world using mathematics. So it feels like a natural thing to do. And you feel tempted to say that the universe is mathematical, that this is the only way that you can do it. But that's like a big step forward. That's like a big leap philosophically to say, we've ever only ever done it this way. Therefore you can only ever do it this way, right? Like maybe you've only eaten sweet things for breakfast. And so you imagine breakfast has to be a sweet treat, right? (laughs) And then you take a trip to Asia and you're like, what spicy soup for breakfast? That's bonkers. And a couple of days later, you're like, how did I not try this for the first 50 years of my life? My whole world has been expanded, right? That's one of the joys of traveling. So it might be that this is the only way you can do it, that the universe is fundamentally mathematical and that we are revealing its inner workings. Or it could just be that we've only ever had donuts for breakfast and that when we meet aliens, they're like, what is all this stuff you're doing? It's totally unnecessary. You should try this other way of talking about physics. And we'd be like, wow, spicy physics for breakfast is amazing. You know, I read this amazing book called um, Science Without Numbers. This is this guy, Hartree Field, a philosopher, and he set out to prove that actually mathematics is not even necessary for science. Like, sure, it's totally useful. And we all use math when we do science. But is it necessary? Like, if the universe is mathematical and we're discovering math, we're revealing it, then you'd need math to describe it. But if instead math is like a human invention, a way we are thinking rather than the way the universe is, then you might not need it. There might be other ways to do it. And so he set out on this project. He's like, let me see if I can describe gravity without any numbers. He has this amazing book called Science Without Numbers. Um, It's kind of dense philosophically. It's not like, you know, an easy thing to read, but he actually accomplished it. He was able to develop a theory of gravity that doesn't have any numbers in it. Uh, You know, no math at all. It's just like, here's how you can think about gravity. And instead of like, coming up with like a gravitational field that pulls on stuff, he like gives more um, power to space itself. He like embeds these things in space. Anyways, it's a fun digression, but the point is we just don't know. And philosophically, we are far from figuring out basic stuff like, is math something we invented? Is math something we discovered? Is the universe itself mathematical? So if you then want to go from, well, universe is mathematical to the universe is like code. I mean, that's sort of a conclusion built, I don't know, kind of on sand because we, we don't know, you know, we just don't know if the universe is mathematical or not. Um, Max Tegmark has this great book called our mathematical universe, 
where he argues that, you know, the universe can be described mathematically. Therefore, it is a mathematical construct. And that's cool, but I don't really know, like, how he gets there. You know, he just sort of, like, says it. Because if it can exist mathematically, therefore it does exist physically. Like, any mathematical universe you can dream up, therefore exists somehow in physical space. And, I mean, that would be awesome, but I don't really know how, how you persuade yourself of that. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to just run a thought experiment about, can you think of, because... <laughs> I think most people think in terms of math, of science, and those two are almost in tandem. So to remove the math from science is actually really interesting. So I, I guess my fundamental question was, it, could it be code? Because a lot of people might think of the universe as a computer mm -hmm. or as like this computational system mm -hmm. that we exist in. And then are we code? And then <laughs> the, the, the leap forward is then, can we create code, which would be AI, and then can AI, is that sentience? Mm -hmm. So then the question is, is what is consciousness? Mm -hmm. You know, so how do you, what is your kind of reasoning as to what consciousness is? Because I've heard it all. I've heard <laughs> consciousness is everything, right? That's what a lot of people say, especially in the spiritual community. They say yeah. consciousness is everything and everything is fundamentally, fundamentally that. And I've had guests on that have said that too. And then there's more the argument that consciousness is what makes us human. So how do you see consciousness? I think it's one of the biggest unsolved problems, you know, in human existence. Like, why am I experiencing anything? And do I know if you're experiencing anything? Is everybody else out there just like a zombie acting like they're conscious? Or are they actually having some first-person experience? I'll never know. In the same way that, like, you can talk to ChatGPT or to Bing or whatever, and they can claim that they are there and they're aware and they're conscious and they have feelings. Are they? You'll never know, right? Um, you'll never know if anybody else is out there. <clears throat> and that's the skeptic's viewpoint. <clears throat> Excuse me. On the other hand, you know, you talk to people, they, ser they certainly seem real. Um, I have a wife. <clears throat> I love her. I believe she's real, that she's out there. She's feeling things. She seems like she's feeling things. I love my children. I even love my dog. I know my dog has emotions, you know? Either it's real and everybody's having these experiences or it's some very, very elaborate, very, very persuasive, I don't know, hoax or game or whatever. But so assume that everybody is actually like real and out there and having experiences. How do we explain that? Like, you know, the, the direction you suggested, you know, starting from the laws and the code and whatever, that's tempting. We have this reductionist approach, right? Like, let's take everything apart figure out the rules of the smallest bits and then work upwards. Like, cause that's how a computer program works, right? In the end, Microsoft Word or whatever is just a bunch of like really tiny instructions to the computer. Move this bit here, flip this bit there. And in the end, all of it comes together to make, you know, Microsoft Word or whatever program you're using. Um, and so you might hope the universe works the same way. So far, we've been able to do that, right? Like we can take, water apart and see, oh, it's made out of little bits and those bits interact in this way. And that's why water flows. And we can take steel apart and say, oh, that's why it has these properties. And we can often explain macroscopic stuff, big picture stuff in terms of the little bits, right? And that's like the whole project of my life is I'm a particle physicist. We try to tear stuff apart, right. understand the smallest <laughs> bits, thinking. right? That's the whole idea. <laughs> yeah. um, and so far that's worked really well. 
On the other hand, we don't know that it's going to work. Like we don't know that you can, in the end, explain everything in terms of the particles. Like does the toing and froing of all the particles really explain what's going on in your brain? Mm, I don't know. Um, if you talk to philosophers and ask this question, you know, some of them say, well, how do you know the particles can do everything? Why do you assume that the fundamental laws of the universe are always about the smallest things? Why can't you have fundamental laws of the particles and also, also fundamental laws of brains and people? And you might think, well, brains and people are made out of particles. So what can they be more other than just, you know, a bunch of particles doing a bunch of things? And we don't know, but like there's lots of examples in the universe of things emerging, you know, things existing at sort of like higher level when lots of stuff comes together um, to make something new that might really follow its own laws. So I spoke to a bunch of philosophers about this and, you know, some of them say there could be their, our own laws like at our own level that are different from the fundamental laws of the particles and that act independently and that can like control particles and you know, we have no evidence for that. There's no scientific basis for it. But philosophically, you can't prove it wrong. You know, and scientifically, we can't even prove it wrong. A problem with a lot of these things is that they're philosophical questions. They're not scientific questions. So you can't like construct an experiment always to answer the question. Like, uh, you know, say, for example, let's go back to the first question. Like, are you real? Like, are you actually having a first person experience in there or not? How could I ever figure that out? I can't. The only way I ever could know is to be you, is to somehow tap into your subjective experience. But by definition, I can't. All I can do is experience mine. So there's literally no experiment I could do to determine whether you're an automaton that claims to be sentient or you're actually sentient. So that's the distinction, right? Some things are scientific. We can like test them. And some things are just philosophy. I don't mean just philosophy to like, you know, denigrate it in any way, but I just mean that it's a different kind of question when we can talk about forever and not necessarily figure out that like particle physics can't say anything about. So, you know, you asked me like, what's my view on consciousness, maybe like as a particle physicist, I don't know that being a particle physicist gives me any <laughs> expertise <laughs> on consciousness because I don't know that it's a question about particles. Mm -hmm. You know, people okay. often ask me if quantum mechanics is like, um, can explain consciousness because they have this view of like your brain is a bunch of little bits and those bits follow rules. And we used to think that the universe was deterministic, that like, you know, two bits bounce against each other. You get a certain outcome. And if you do it again, you get the same outcome, but now like we Newton, know right. like Newton, exactly. But now we know the universe is not that way, that actually at the smallest scale, it's random. Like, not that it doesn't follow any laws, but that the laws, instead of saying exactly what happens, they say like, this is likely to happen or that's less likely to happen, which means that you can do the same thing multiple times and get different outcomes. And so people often point to that and say, maybe the brain is quantum mechanical. Maybe that's where free will is. That's how like, you know, my thoughts can influence what's happening. And I don't see there's any argument for that. Like quantum mechanics doesn't have any opening for free will. It, it means that things are a little bit random. It doesn't mean that there's like anything goes. Um, so those kind of arguments I'm pretty skeptical of. If you're enjoying today's podcast and you want to support it, check out Universal Game Academy on Patreon, which is where our academy is, where we have exclusive podcasts that are too spicy for here. 
And we also have classes that we hold each month, live Q&As and much more. The link for that is in the description. Yeah. So as a particle physicist, then, how do you see, I had on that podcast that you watched with Azra, and she was talking about quantum gravity. Yeah. How can someone begin to understand what that means? Yeah. Quantum gravity, basically the biggest open question in particle physics. And the question is, is pretty simple. It's how does gravity work for particles? And you might think, well, that seems pretty simple. It, it is pretty simple, but we just don't know the answer. You know, we don't know how it works. And the reason is that gravity and quantum mechanics are two very, very different theories. They just, they tell you very different stories about how the world works. Like gravity says, particles have locations and they have velocities, basically like tiny little baseballs and they move through space the same way like a baseball moves through space. And if a baseball is in one spot and later it's somewhere else, then you can assume it went from that one spot to somewhere else because that's how things work in the universe, right? You can't like disappear and then reappear somewhere else. You like move smoothly. There's like continuous paths. That's gravity's view of the universe. Quantum mechanics says that's not true at all. For tiny little things, the rules are totally different. Like path, there's no such thing as a path. An electron doesn't have a path. Uh, an electron was here and then it was there. Doesn't mean that it went from here to there. Like it just was here and then later it was there. You can't assume that there's like a path between them and they can do weird things. Like an electron can be maybe over here and maybe over there. So if you want to answer the simple question, like, well, what is the gravity of a particle? Then it's hard because gra gravity says, well, the gravity depends on where you are. You ask the electron, where are you? And it's got multiple places it could be. So now you don't know, like, is the gravity of an electron averaged over where all the different places it could be? Or do you like measure the electron and like collapse it? So now it's only one spot and that's where its gravity is. We just don't know. Like is gravity a quantum thing or not? So we don't know how to do that very, very basic thing. Um, and you might think, well, how hard is that to figure out? Just like get some particles, measure their gravity, right? Remember particles are super duper 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 tiny. And so they have almost no gravity because gravity is also super duper duper weak. Like gravity compared to the other forces is like 10 to the 30 times weaker than any other force. You know, I can take a little magnet and it'll hold up like a staple or a nail and it's fighting the gravity of the entire earth and winning. And it's not even very hard, right? So magnetism is crazy strong compared to gravity. So if you want to measure the gravity of like tiny particles, then, um, it's almost impossible because their gravity is almost zero. The only thing that we can measure gravity for is pretty big stuff, you know, planets, baseballs, this kind of stuff. And for pretty big stuff, quantum eff effects don't appear. So we have like tiny stuff where quantum mechanics rules and we have big stuff where gravity rules and no places basically where both are important, which is why it's really hard to figure out a theory of quantum gravity. Essentially the only place where you need quantum mechanics and you need gravity are places where you have a lot of mass, so gravity is strong, and you have really, really small particles, so like quantum mechanics is relevant. And that's like inside a black hole. So inside a black hole, quantum gravity is doing its thing. We can't see inside a black hole, so we don't know, but the secrets of quantum gravity are literally waiting for us inside a black hole. So nobody knows how this works. We have like 
two pillars of theory of physics, gravity, quantum mechanics. Both of them tested out the wazoo, totally work, but fundamentally incompatible. We don't know how to unify them. Big question, like in a hundred years, people are going to look back knowing how quantum gravity works and be like, uh, you know, what was it like to be so ignorant to not know this basic stuff about the universe or somebody's going to have a great idea and figure it out. And we're all going to be like, oh man, it was so obvious. But you know, today the brightest minds working on this problem have not figured it out. Nobody knows how to move forward. Interesting. Okay. So going back to the particles for a second, I think it's important to kind of linger on the not knowing of where particles are and how that specifically works. Cause I'm, mm. I don't think a lot of people are aware of, I think it might be called the probability field mm-hmm. or something close to that. And mm-hmm. so could you go into how that works? Because a lot of people think it's super easy. You're just looking at things and it's like, that's where it is. And I can, we can right. track it, but that right. doesn't seem to be how it works. Right. Yeah. It does, you're right. Exactly. It doesn't, it's not how it works. So quantum mechanics tells us that for baseballs, you can just use Newton's method. But when you, you know, F equals MA and particles have, and objects have paths. But when you get down to really, really small stuff, electrons and protons and, and tiny little objects, the rules are different. And the rules go like this, that an object doesn't have a location. It has a probability of having various locations. You know, so for example, you put an electron in a box or we put an electron around an, an, a, a proton in a nucleus. Where is the electron? Well, it's, it doesn't have a specific location. It's like somewhere in the box. And you can say it's more likely to be here or, le- or less likely to be there. Or an electron around a nucleus you, has an orbital, right? That doesn't mean that it's orbiting. An electron is not like a tiny little planet orbiting the sun. It's not moving in a circle. It has probabilities of being here and probabilities of being there. Now, a lot of people think, well, the electron is somewhere. We just don't know, right? It's like, the electron is doing its thing and then we take a picture of it or whatever and we figure out where it was at that moment. But when we weren't looking, it was still somewhere, right? And that's fundamentally not true. Like the electron, if you're not looking at it, doesn't have a location. It has a probability of being in various locations. It's literally undetermined. It's not determined, but we don't know it. It's literally not yet set. It's like lives in this ambivalent state, this undetermined state until something asks it, interacts with it. Like you shoot a photon at it or try to take a picture of it. And that forces the electron to say, okay, I'm going to be in one spot just for a moment. And then I'm going to go back to being fuzzy again. So that's how quantum particles work. And you know, why is that? We don't know. It's just like our description of what we've seen over the last hundred years doing experiments that otherwise don't make any sense uh, unless you take this weird picture of how things work at a very, very small scale. And one of the biggest points of confusion is that point where something goes from like having a chance of being here and having a chance of being there to all of a sudden being in one spot. How does that work? Right. And that's not, and that doesn't, and that doesn't make any sense to you probably. And the reason is that doesn't make sense to anyone. It's not something we understand. You know, we think that the electron has, we call it the wave function. This describes where it's likely to be and where it's not likely to be. And we think that it can interact with other quantum particles, like two electrons can interact and then have like, you know, lots of different combinations for where they might be. But that something weird happens when you interact with a particle using like your eyeball or using a detector or using a human or using anything big. 
anything classical, we call it, because my experience of the world and your experience is that this is very strange. Like, I don't see baseballs being in two places at once or having the possibility of being in two places at once. This is not something we ever observe. So in our world, we never see this. So then if our world interacts with the quantum world, it somehow forces the quantum world to follow our rules. To say, look, you had lots of different possibilities for a while, but now you're going to have to pick just for a moment because we're asking you this question. And that's the part that sticks in people's brains. Like, how does the universe know to force it to pick? And, you know, the classical quantum mechanical theory, what we call the Copenhagen interpretation, doesn't answer this question. It says, well, you got quantum stuff, which can have superpositions and different possibilities, and you got classical stuff, which can't. What's the difference, you ask? It doesn't say. Where's the line? There is no line. You know, if I, like, poke an electron with my finger, a classical finger, I'm poking a quantum particle. Quantum mechanics says when I poke it, that, like, that forces it to decide where it's going to be. How does that work? Because, like, my finger is made of quantum particles. If I just touch it with a quantum particle, that doesn't collapse its wave function. But if I touch it with the tip of my finger, which in the end is just quantum particles, somehow that collapses its wave function. So it's not something we understand. It's like a big open question in quantum mechanics, how this works, why particles, wave functions collapse, if they even do. And there's lots of like different alternative views of the universe that try to avoid this question. You know, the many worlds theory or Bohmian mechanics or all sorts of stuff. I have so many questions. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So I wrote about the Copenhagen interpretation in my book, and I also wrote about many worlds, which you just mentioned. And so how do you see, what do you think is the most accurate? I know it's basically all of her interpretation, but how do you see the interpretation of the double slit experiment? Do you think it's more likely for it to be many worlds or do you see it more as just potentials kind of wave probability waves because that's really what we're talking about because i think what you're just describing is basically it's in wave tell me if i'm wrong but it's basically it's a wave until we look we do something with it and it becomes a particle and so there's this kind of like uh, we don't know where it is because maybe it still is a wave so do you see the many worlds or maybe copenhagen or do you think there's a more accurate interpretation of how that works just, I mean, uh, it's opinion yeah, at that point, yeah. you know. It, but. It, you're right. It's, it's philosophy or it's opinion, right? There's no experiment we can do to distinguish between these various ideas. Um, I think fundamentally the problem is, you know, Copenhagen ex interpretation is trying to use particles and waves to describe this thing. But they're very different kinds of things. And it's, the problem is that we're trying to describe something new, something weird in terms of something we know, which is what you do in physics, right? Like, <clears throat> imagine you... Uh, eat a new fruit for the first time and your friend asks you, what's it like? And you're like, well, it's kind of like a kiwi and a little bit like an apricot or whatever. You can't like describe a totally new fruit using completely new words unless you're like a genius poet. So you reach for the <laughs> things you know, right? And so what we, what happened to us in physics is we found these weird things, photons and electrons. We're like, what are these things? Oh my God, they're not particles. They're not waves. And they're neither, right? Just like your new fruit is not an apricot. It's not a cherry. Um, those are like approximate descriptions that give you an idea. And like what's going on here is that these particles are not waves. They're not particles. They're neither. There's something new and weird that we have no intuitive language for. Um, and so we're failing to describe it. We have a mathematical language. 
The math describes it and works just great, right? No problems there. For us, it's a question of interpretation and philosophy. We want to know like what's happening, what's real out there. And we just don't have an intuitive analog that we can use. So we're struggling. And I think probably Copenhagen interpretation is wrong. I mean, it's nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. You know, you have, you can't, it doesn't distinguish between what's classical and what's quantum. So obviously it's not even really a candidate because it's not complete, right? Many worlds interpretation that says it's beautiful in lots of ways because it says, forget this collapse business. That makes no sense. Start with the Schrodinger equation and things evolve forward in time and we know how that works and everything's a wave and it's always been a wave and it's going to wave forever, man. And that's very nice, right? Um, but there's also questions about it. Like many worlds interpretation says that when two things can happen, the universe like splits into two branches and both of them are valid. But the thing that's weird about that is like we're in one of them. Like I do this experiment. I see the electron go left. You Maybe in another universe, I see the electron go right. But I'm in the one where I see the electron go left. Why am I in that one and not the other universe? It doesn't for me answer that question of like, if the universe can have multiple possibilities, why can I only experience one of them? Why am I not able to experience the whole wave function of the universe? I don't know. So Maybe that's just human perception. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, it, maybe it's human perception. Maybe it's something we're limited by. Maybe it's something about how our brains work. Um, I don't know. But I feel like, the answer is none of these. And we're going to come up with a better idea that later people can be like, that was so obvious. You know? <laughs> I feel like we're, you know, we're the ancient Greeks struggling, struggling over like epicycles, trying to explain what we see in the night sky and something basic we've assumed is wrong. And that's letting us not understand what the obvious answer is that's right in front of us. And that in 200 years, people will be like, man, if I was a physicist or a philosopher back then, I totally would have come up with this and been a famous genius. But, you know, I think that points to something in physics, which is like, this stuff is hard. It's easy when you look back on the history of physics to see it as like this obvious progression from idea to idea. But when you're here, like standing on the forefront of human ignorance, like it's hard to know what's right and what's wrong. And there's so many ideas out there that people are considering and they all seem kind of wrong and kind of right. So I think it's like it's a valuable lesson to get yourself up to the forefront of human knowledge and, and, and realize how difficult it is to understand which direction even is going to be a fruitful path, not to mention like how to make progress on it. Yeah, and I think that's why a lot of people struggle to pick. Do I want to study this? I think there's a lot, of, lot less people who are going to school uh, to study things, and this is just my own speculation. Mm -hmm. I think it's because... It seems like it's very difficult to just be kind of like, this is exactly what I want to do. And maybe it's more of like, I'm interested in a lot of different things. And I think I, this is something I've struggled with is picking a specialization mm. because, because I think it is so difficult. Like to understand what you understand is very difficult to do. And so I do think that I agree with you that there is a limitation because it is hard. And so when you take a look at the future, like you're saying, okay, a hundred years in the future, we can figure this out. <laughs> what do you think that do you think the basic limitation is, is that it's difficult or do you think that there's something in our human capacity that's not letting us do it? Or do you think it's just like evolution? We'll just get there eventually. You know, I think it's incredible what progress we've made, you know, like, wow, think about what we've learned about the universe in the last 20 years, a hundred years, 500 years. I just hope that we keep doing it, that if we continue on this path that we keep, 
you know, funding science and supporting scientists and that everybody out there keeps being curious about the universe because I think our curiosity is unbounded and our intellectual capacity as humans is certainly bounded, but I don't think we've hit anywhere near the top of it. You know, like, is it possible that the universe is more complex than we'll ever be able to figure out because our brains are just not powerful enough? Absolutely, that's true. That's possible, right? Like, my dog is pretty smart, but definitely not smart enough to understand the universe. And I don't believe humans are infinitely smart. So there's definitely a limit. But I don't think that's what's holding us back. I think it's just a question of, you know, creativity and exploration. There's like a vast, undiscovered um, country out there of ideas that nobody's considered because we can only explore a few things you know there's like it takes time and energy to explore all this stuff and uh, most of the ideas out there we haven't even considered really and every single one takes effort um, so i think we will continue to make progress as long as we allow our curiosity to do that and you know scientific progress is not limited to just like professional scientists or professors or people paid to do this there's a huge number of ideas out there. And all of science, remember, is just people being curious. Like you read some headline about something. It's about how gerbils reproduce or it's about how particles bounce off each other. And you, it takes you like 30 seconds. You're like, ooh, cool. And you move on. That represents like 10 years of somebody's life. Why did they study how gerbils reproduce or how these particles bounce off each other? Because they decided... It was the most important thing in the universe. That was what they had to devote their life to. That one question, figure that out, like chisel away at you know the mountain of ignorance and reveal some truth. So science is just people being curious and deciding, well, I got to put everything else aside and figure this out. That's me. Like I decided for me, the question is, what is the smallest thing? What's it made out of? How does it all, that all work? I, I got to know, man. I want to figure this out before I die. So I'm going to spend my life doing it instead of being a high school teacher or being a fireman or whatever. And so we'll keep making progress as long as people are still curious and curious enough to spend their lives on it. Hmm. Yeah. And I think it does take that amount of specialization sometimes because if you're focused on too many things, you're not going to be able to really get the full picture because it does take a lot of time to understand, especially science. I feel like science is one of the most difficult things to understand for a lot of people. And speci specifically, I think math, but as we mm -hmm. talked about earlier, math is kind of the language we use mm -hmm. to understand science in some respects. So kind of going back to, you watched that podcast I did with Azra. That was a very esoteric kind of out there podcast. And I was, mm -hmm. I had just kind of met her. And so I was like, all right, you've got a theory of everything, huh? Let's just see it. And yeah. we just kind of threw it out there to see. Because my, my viewpoint was, I want to give people a voice that may not be heard, but I'm not going to say that it's truth. Like, I think everyone kind of deserves that kind of ability to say, this is what I think it is. And mm -hmm. I, I, I believe that people will have the capacity to say, yeah, this is true, or this is false, or these are the reasons why, and kind mm -hmm. of have their own discernment. So when you watch that episode, what are some things that you think are some misconceptions from, do you, if you have any, if you don't, we yeah. can move on. But, but what do you think are some things in that? Well, first, I think before we get into the details of her episode, let's talk about like how valuable it is that people are thinking outside the box. Because I think, you know, this, this, this perception from outside of science that like, science doesn't listen to outsiders or that it's impossible to break in or you know that um there's this like dogmatic view of how the universe works and 
I want to push back against that a little bit and also help people understand why they might perceive it that way, right? Remember that science is just a bunch of people. And so like, and, and that it takes time and energy and effort. So if, for example, you come up with your own theory of the universe and you email it to a random professor, like that lady's busy, right? That professor is busy. She's got lots of things to do, her own research and teaching and kids and whatever. And to really digest some work you've done is hard. Now imagine that work you've done is like right at the cutting edge of modern science and it speaks the language of modern science and it references previous work. And it's like, you know, I understand the problems and I'm trying this new thing. Even then it's hard, right? Reading like the paper of a colleague in your own field that's new and innovative is a lot of work and takes like brain power. And I do this kind of thing all the time. I'm asked to like review papers and I sit down and I think about them and I read them and it's hard. It's much, much harder if the person doesn't speak your language, they haven't like read all the previous work and they're not in the community and they just came at this like from their own ideas. They A lot of divine start... realization is what I find. Yeah. It, that, that is what it is, you know? Yeah. And it's and, not bad or good. I'm just saying. Yeah. They, they, ha absolutely. they don't have that background, you know? Yeah. Maybe they don't have the background and maybe they're a super genius and they've come up with all right. sorts of new ideas and built an entirely new foundation and, 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 and correctly figured a bunch of stuff out. Let's imagine like everything they're doing is correct. In that scenario, it's an enormous amount of work to like figure out what is all this new stuff? How does it work? Uh, is, it, is it valid? You know, it's really, really hard to do. It's a huge amount of work. And so what you find is if you just email your theory to a random professor, they're going to be like, I don't have time to get into this. And, you know, I get this kind of stuff all the time uh, on our podcast, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe. I tell people like, send me your stuff, email us, because I feel like you know, it's important that people have a little bit of access to, to scientists. We're all paid for on public dollars. Um, and so I try to try to actually try to do this. I read people's theories all the time and give them feedback on it. But I'll tell you, it's a huge amount of work to dig into somebody else's work. If it's far away from the mainstream, it makes it much, much harder. So that's why I think people might experience this sense that like, Oh, modern science is a bunch of ivory tower coneheads that won't listen to my <laughs> ideas, right? Well, they're all busy, yeah. right? And your ideas are written in another language and you're asking a huge amount of work. And a lot of people write in a lot of stuff that frankly doesn't make much sense. And so it's easy to begin just like dismissing it. Now, I, I'm maybe a little bit unusual, but I read every one of these things and I give everybody 30 minutes. That's my rule, I say. Somebody sends me a theory, I'm going to give it 30 minutes to digest it. My podcast it was 20. <laughs> <Something> <laughs> like that. And so, yeah. So, I, you know, I want to encourage everybody out there, think deep thoughts about the universe. Read up about it. If you really do have a theory that you think is like super interesting, you've made some breakthrough, you, what you really should do is like try to speak the language of academic physics because, you know, just as like a piece of advice, that's your best shot at getting somebody to listen to you. If you walk if you've written a new play and it's in a language you invented it's going to be hard to find an audience right all right so you know that warm-up aside like i listened to um Azra, your podcast with Azra, and i went to her website and i read some of the stuff that she's talked about and you know i had a lot of trouble making any sense of it you know let's talk about what she what she was saying she was talking about prime numbers prime numbers amazing right super fascinating mathematical puzzles like why do prime numbers exist? How many prime numbers are there? What are the patterns of the prime numbers? Whole communities of people working on these problems um, in, in math and making like recent progress. I don't know if you know about like the twin prime conjecture. 
this this idea that like there are prime numbers that are just like two apart, you know, um, 11 and 13 twin primes, right? And so somebody was like, hmm, I wonder how many of those there are. And so there's this theory that there's an infinite number of twin primes that as you keep going, not only can you keep finding primes forever, but you can keep finding these pairs where primes are just two apart. Nobody's proved this. They've worked on it and they figured out that you can always find pairs that are like a few hundred numbers apart. They keep shaving it down. Like every year they get it closer and closer. That's just an example of like, nobody understands prime numbers. Nobody knows what the patterns are. And if you figure just that out, like take everything else she set aside, gravitational theory, unified field theory, quantization of space, all that stuff aside, this would be huge. Like she's claiming to have found patterns of prime numbers, an explanation for why there's some numbers are prime and other prime numbers are not. I don't, didn't understand from what she said and from reading what's on her website, her explanation for the structure, you know, how you could predict where the primes are. But even just that would be enormous. So like that would be a big step forward. Um, and so I'm a little skeptical of that because it's, it's a big open problem and she's claimed to have solved it, but you know, yeah. there's a lot of details missing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she makes this big step where she says that like, okay, you have these patterns of the primes and accept that for, true for now. And that that somehow explains quantization of space or provides you a unified field theory. So a unified field theory would be a theory that unifies quantum mechanics and gravity. And that basically tells you like, how to treat gravity in a quantum mechanical sense. What is the gravity for a particle? Um, what we just talked about a little bit. What right? we just talked about, like the biggest question in modern physics, right? Like five Nobel prizes worth, right? Or like <laughs> where a big step towards it would be worth a Nobel prize, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, we're talking like mega big questions. And so, you know, she's suggesting she solved this huge problem in math, which simultaneously solves this huge problem in physics, but she doesn't actually explain like, how does having prime numbers give you a unified field theory? Like to me, this I don't understand the relationship between them. And again, it could be that she's right and she's figured all this out, but she's just speaking um, quickly and skipping over a lot of steps. But I didn't follow those kind I don't understand any connection between prime numbers and unified field theory. To me, it seems it reads a lot like here's a bunch of words I'm familiar with, but they're connected in ways that don't make any sense to me. And, you know, again, and if they don't um, make sense to you, (laughs) maybe she's right. If you've committed your life to this, though, you know what I'm saying? To understanding these things. And so if you're part of the community, you kind of represent the the way that scientists and physicists usually understand things. So it's kind of it's not just that you don't understand it. It's that you've studied this for a long time and also don't understand it, you know, because I don't understand. I didn't understand it. But hey, there's a lot of shit I don't understand. But yeah. it's different when you say it. That's what I'm it saying. It is. And you it know? could be, again, I want to give her a lot of benefit of the doubt. And everybody, because I don't didn't really understand it, doesn't mean it's wrong, right? It just means there's a lot of dot, dot, dots in there. And I was like, well, hold on. How do you go from A to B? You just yada, yada it over the really interesting part. Maybe that she just needs to provide more details. And so, like, that's how scientists communicate. You know, you say, yeah, I've solved this. But it's just, okay, well, show us the details. Um, and then we can pour over it and see if we understand it and if we have questions and whatever. And again, I'm totally willing to look at somebody's write-up about this, but there's just, it's such scant information. It's just like, you know, I figured this out. And then also, by the way, this solves this other problem, but I'm not really telling you how. So Yeah. And I mean, also to give her a benefit of the doubt, I, 
also on the it was 20 minutes yeah you know sure. and if it if you're describing the nature of reality i don't know if you can do it in 20 minutes i mean yeah so but the the kind of opposite side of that is that you did go to her website and you also did explore and it also didn't explain further there so there yeah. is that as well so yeah i kind of my take on it was i didn't understand it either and i knew that there was a lot of it that i didn't understand it but i was like okay somebody might understand this and if they don't well then okay let's uh, let's say this is why we don't understand it because i think right it is important to consider people outside of science but that's actually what i'm trying to do in general mm-hmm. is i have been trying to learn the language of science and of quantum physics and of physics in general so that i can maybe relate this to other things that I'm very interested in. And mm-hmm. as me, as a human, I'm interested in science, which we're talking about. I'm also interested in history. I'm interested in what ancient civilizations and traditions thought about the nature of reality. What is these thousands of years old wisdom? What did they think? Mm-hmm. And how can we compare this to modern day mm-hmm. science? And, and so I'm kind of trying to link these spiritual traditions and science. And it's very difficult sometimes because you get people... I mean, if you look at my Instagram, I'll have videos that do really well. They get a lot of views, but so many people comment, oh, that's pseudoscience. It's pseudoscience. <laughs> and that's like one of the top comments that I get. And so I do think that you, going back to what you said earlier, there is kind of this closeness approach that maybe not even scientists have or physicists have, but a lot of the general public does that we can't talk about it unless we have this credential or this thing. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to do in general is break the mold of it has to be someone who has went and studied it their entire life just to talk about it. And so kind of moving forward, forward with this idea, I think there has been throughout a lot of ancient cultures, this idea of an ether Mm -hmm. or this uh, kind of fifth or not, I don't know about fifth, but this element that we we don't understand that kind of pervades. And so, you know, we see this most often in Thor Right. <laughs> There's at least some mainstream mention of it. And so I think a lot of people might hear this, but this has actually been an idea that's been explored a lot in physics in mm-hmm. general. So mm-hmm. how do you see the idea of an ether? Is it viable? Is it kind of nonsense? Could it exist? What are your thoughts? Um, I love the sort of historical process of, of, of invention of the ether. I think it really illustrates something important, which is that we should be ready for big surprises about the very nature of the universe. Like the whole idea that there's an ether is like a grand piece of imagination. You know, you're like, wait, hold on a second. Uh, light is a wave and is wiggling something. Every other wave we know about is wiggling something. Sound waves are wiggling air, or, you know, this kind of stuff. Guitar waves are wiggling a string. What is light wiggling? And so it's this wonderful moment when you're like, well, hold on a second, maybe I need to update my whole view of the universe. And to say that like the universe is now filled with something you previously didn't know about, you know, we, we don't think the ether, that ether is real, that, you know, we think that photons just travel through the fabric of space itself. And so we tend to like look back on it a little bit with, you know, dismissal and say like, ha ha ha, those silly guys invented this crazy thing called an ether. But I think we can look at history and get the opposite experience the opposite lesson that sometimes we do need to completely update our view of the universe that we should be ready for and accept scientific revolutions basically at any scale that says okay guys the way you've been thinking about the universe is totally wrong here's some evidence that proves it's wrong you got to totally change your mind 
And so ideas of the scale of the ether we should accept. For example, a modern idea that a lot of people dismiss as just like kind of like the ether, ha ha ha, what a bunch of idiots, is this idea of dark matter. Like we've discovered over the last 50 years or so that most of the stuff that's out there in the universe is not the kind of matter that I'm made out of or you're made out of or the earth or the sun or any stars out there are made out of. That most of the matter in the universe is something invisible to us. We call it dark matter. This should be called like invisible matter. But it's 80% of the universe. And that means that like the universe is literally filled with all sorts of stuff that we didn't know about. And so we should be like open to ideas that like, yeah, the universe is filled with this crazy stuff that's different from what we expected. We should be, we should be able to consider those ideas. On the other hand, it's a big idea. And you don't just like accept some crazy new idea, you know, on a Monday because you heard about it on a Sunday, right? It takes time and skepticism. And you have to overcome a bunch of hurdles and convince yourself it's real because that's like a big idea requires big evidence. Um, and so I think it's fascinating that, for example, dark matter is still like kind of dismissed. I like I look at lots of stuff online. People talk about dark matter. And a lot of the comments are like dark matter. Pff, that's the ether of this, this century or like dark matter is a hoax or whatever. And, you know, the evidence for dark matter is like shockingly strong. Like it's very, very, it's an excellent theory. Like obviously nobody knows anything for sure, but we're pretty sure it's there. Um, and yet it's like mostly dismissed. So like, you know, do I think there's an ether? I think there's a lot of stuff out there we haven't discovered yet. There's a lot of room out there for new things. Um, specifically on an ether, it depends exactly on what you mean. Like, is there some sort of weird substance out there that light travels through? I don't think that's the case. I think that light is an oscillation of the fundamental fields of space. On the other hand, we don't know what space is. Like, right. Before we're talking about space might not be fundamental. You yeah. Know? So you know, what is space anyway? Right. If, you know, if we're making this big distinction between fields that move through space and fields that move through like matter, then like, well, what is matter? Matter we think of now is just ripples in quantum fields in space. And so like the distinction gets a little bit fuzzier, right? Like, okay, electrons are waves in, in electron fields, which fill all of space. And so sound is like waves in those electron fields. You know, it, the, the difference between um, fundamentally moving through the, sorry, the difference between moving through the fundamental fields of space and moving through like combinations of those fields Seems a little bit like a fuzzy line to me. Um, so there's lots of potential for discovering new stuff out there for sure. Hmm. Okay. So that's interesting. Now moving on to something that's actually really been popular lately. I'd say about three months ago or something like mm -hmm. that. There is this discovery, which I'm sure you've probably heard of, which is local realism is false. The universe isn't real. That's what people have been saying. And, and so as a physicist, what, is it accurate to say that the universe isn't real or this type of thing? Or is that kind of like sensationalism? And uh, what are these discoveries that they made about the universe potentially being not real? You know? <laughs> uh, or locally you, real? Yeah. I guess you're talking about the, like the more recent tests of Bell's inequality, these kind of things, the loophole mm -hmm. free tests. Yeah, yeah, these are really fascinating. Um, this is basically going back to the question we were talking about earlier, like what happens to a particle when you're not looking, right? And I was saying earlier that when you're not looking at a particle, 
that it has two possibilities or many possibilities, and it can exist in those at all at the same time. And it's not known that there's this difference between something not being known and something being not actually not determined. And we're saying the universe really doesn't determine it. And that when you ask it, it like chooses a random number. And so, you know, the, uh, these, there's a bunch of these, you might wonder like, how do we know that? How could you possibly tell what the universe is doing when you're not looking, right? So the, there's a bunch of these really ingenious experiments uh, devised by John Bell, a physicist from the middle of last century, to try to figure out if the universe is like, has actually fig- already decided what the electron's going to do. It just waits till you ask, or if it really hasn't yet decided until you ask. And you might think that seems impossible. How could you ever do an experiment to distinguish between those two things? Because in both cases, you're not asking till the end. How can you tell when the universe decided? So Bell, super genius, really clever guy, came up with these amazing experiments that take advantage of quantum properties, properties that electrons have that like baseballs don't have. And he figured out a way to conduct these experiments so that like if those possibilities are live, if like an electron really isn't determined until you make the measurement, that those possibilities can like interact and interfere with each other in a way you can actually see in the experiment. It's quite technical and involves like, you know, a bunch of particles at different angles and how you measure them. And and you can't do one experiment to just determine it. You have to like do a bunch of experiments and it builds up over time. Um, And these experiments consistently shown that the universe is not like secretly keeping track. It's not like the universe knows um, you know, wh- where the electron is going to be and it just waits until you tell tell it and waits until you ask it to tell it that there is no local realism. That's what they mean by realism. That like there is no reality there that the electron is doing that you're just asking about, that it waits, in, it waits until you ask and that's what the universe is telling you. And so these experiments have been getting better and better because people have been wondering like, well, maybe there's a loophole here or maybe are you sure about this bit? And so these experiments get better and better and better and better until eventually, like, they've ruled out all the possible loopholes. And they're pretty sure that, there's, that the universe is working that way. There's just one big loophole and one big qualification left. And that's this one business about local realism. What we're talking about is, like, whether the electron uh, has decided already basically where it's going to be. Is it have some information, like some information in its pocket that tells it like, oh, I'm going to go left or I'm going to go right. You know, you have this double slit experiment, like which slit am I going to go through? Um, and that's the local realism part. Like does the electron itself, is it local, the information to the electron? Does it itself already know which one it's going to go through? So these experiments disprove that. But what they don't disprove is global realism. Like it's possible and totally consistent with these experiments that maybe there's some like global field that's manipulating this stuff. Like the universe knows already which one is going to go left and which one is going to go right. It's not like stored locally on the electron, but there's some like over overarching like pilot wave theory that's deciding what's going to happen. And there is no real randomness. So these experiments are really cool and like total tour de force, like really hard experiments, very clever. Lots of things they did that were like, very, very difficult to do. Um, in the end, what they prove is that the electrons are not like carrying with themselves the secret to what they're going to do later. Um, but what they don't disprove is, what they don't actually really prove is the universe is random. 
they prove that if the universe is random, it has to be in some like global way that like something is coordinating that randomness globally. It can't just be happening locally. And, you know, global theories are weird. It assumes that like there's some overarching thing guiding the whole flow of the universe. And that's not the way we sort of prefer to make our physics theories. We like to think about things happening like, you know, this one is pinging against that one and this one is touching that one. They're like, Things happening across the universe don't influence what's happening here instantaneously. So this is like a, a big preference for local theories rather than global theories. So do you think that preference is just because you have done it that way so far, essentially? Yes, yeah, absolutely. It's a bias. Uh, it's just the way that we've been thinking about physics. And actually, John Bell himself, he's the guy who's like came up with all of these experiments that a lot of people used to you know disprove local realism he's frustrated and he wrote all these articles about how he actually believes in the global view like you know he was frustrated that his experiments were basically used to promote the viewpoint that there is no that that the universe is random and he thought the universe is not random it's deterministic it's controlled by these global theories Uh, that was actually his preference so I think it's a little bonkers, but again, it's, it's just like, it's not the way I'm used to thinking. We tend to think about the universe in terms of like stuff happening near other stuff rather than stuff happening overarching globally. But we also need to be ready for big surprises. So we definitely should keep the door open to that. So let's just say that the global field is there. Mm-hmm. If it was there, this could, I mean, I could definitely be wrong about this, but when you say that it's controlling everything and it's deterministic, would that mean that there's no free will? It would mean that there's no free will. Yeah. It would mean that like the reason the universe is like, a movie <laughs> instead the of universe a game. <laughs> is a big clock. Yeah. It's a movie. Um, you know, what does that mean specifically? Like if you shoot an electron into the double slit experiment or a photon, it means that there's a reason why one of them went left and one of them went right. That it's like you shot it a little bit differently or, you know, the conditions were a little bit different that it, that what you did in the beginning controls the outcome of the experiment. And so like the future is determined exactly by the past. There's no randomness at all. Um, On the other hand, like even if you don't believe that, if you think everything is local and things are random, I don't think that that gives you an opening for free will. Like, you know, what if it's just like saying that you're watching a movie, but the movie is kind of (laughs) random. You can't like control it. You know, you don't have no controller here to like influence where your character is going. Instead of watching a pre-made movie, you're like watching a spontaneously made random movie. So I don't really believe the connection between randomness and free will. I don't really understand how free will works at all. <laughs> Does anybody? <laughs> no. I mean, a lot of people. I mean, it, in the gist, it's like, man, these things, I'm moving them, right? This is me. Mm-hmm. And so is that, mm-hmm. is that true? Like, am I the one? Who is I? They, yeah, you, well, you know, you just keep, keep going, you know? Yeah, like, well, where does your reign of control end? You know, at your fingertips? Uh, where is that defined exactly? Does that include the dead material on it? The air molecules surrounding it? Like, you draw this arbitrary threshold, like, this is my body, that's your body. That's just, you know, an image your brain has built up from experience, a useful model you've constructed in your mind for the world, uh, for the parts of it that you can experience and, and control directly. But, like, that doesn't mean that uh, you're actually controlling any of it, right? <laughs> yeah, that uh, that's interesting. So, in your viewpoint, you see there as being no free will, or how are you just like kind of on the fence of I'm not really sure. 
I really don't know. Yeah, I, it makes no sense to have free will, and yet um, I experience it. So that's pretty confusing, right? Like, mm-hmm. I like to think of the world as making sense, as being logical, as being causal, as following mathematical rules. And I don't know how to explain my experience of the universe in that way. I just don't. Like, the same with consciousness. Like, I cannot go from the rules of particle physics to I'm enjoying a tasty lunch or I'm having an interesting chat with somebody I met online. Like, I just don't know. Or I'm feeling joy. Just that simple thing, right? I'm feeling joy. What does that mean? Where does that come from? Is there a particle nature to that? Not, not something I understand. And, you know, I'm a bit of an amateur philosopher, like I not a, don't have a PhD in philosophy of science or philosophy of anything, but I like to read a lot of this stuff because I feel like a lot of the questions of particle physics that I'm interested in have big philosophical implications. And, and the reason that they're interesting is that they're philosophical, you know, like you want to understand what's everything made out of. That's interesting because it tells you what you're made out of and you want to understand where did everything come from? And that's interesting because we want to know like, where did our universe come from? And what does that mean for how I should live my life and stuff? So, um, you know, um, to, as a disclaimer, like I am an expert in particle physics. I'm a bit of an amateur in this philosophy stuff. So, you know, my, my opinions there are definitely just like what I've read. Sure. Okay. So going back to what Ezra said and, and the gist of it was that there's a theory of everything. Yeah. And so can there even be a theory of everything? Because as far as we know, there, as far as I know, I'm not going to say we because I don't know what everybody else. But my understanding is that there is not a theory of everything. And we talked about throughout this episode of, okay, well, there are laws for different things. Mm-hmm. Like quantum might work differently than particle or, mm-hmm. you know, the big, back to Newton's kind of billiard. It's like, well, this works this way and this is determined by this. and mm-hmm. But that's not the same as quantum. So mm-hmm. when you say, or other people have said, there, this is the theory of everything. Is it possible? Do you think we'll get there? What are your thoughts? It's possible that there's not a theory of everything, right? It's possible that you can't have a single equation to describe everything in the universe. It's um, worked so far. Like we have this interesting trend where, you know, early humans experience a bunch of stuff about the world. And then you start to organize it and look for patterns. And you notice, oh, you know, static electricity and lightning, actually the same thing fundamentally. or Actually, magnetism and lightning are the same thing, right? So we have this trend where we've been able to simplify and unify. And incredible moments in the history of physics, like when Maxwell writes down all the equations for electricity and magnetism, and he looks at them, he's like, hmm, these are pretty similar. Actually, I can put these all together into one theory of electromagnetism. Like, what a moment, you know, to realize that he was looking at two sides of the same coin and the distinction between electricity and magnetism is just historical. It's just like human, just like a totally invented one. It's like people have been studying the front side of the elephant and the back side of the elephant and never talk to each other. And then they're like, oh, huh, all of your questions actually answer all of my questions. I've been wondering, where does all this food go the elephant eats? Or the other people are like, we've been wondering where all this stuff comes from, the back of the elephant. So that's incredible to see like progress is made. So we sort of extrapolate. We say, look, we've been doing this for a while and things seem to get simpler and simpler as we get deeper and deeper. So maybe eventually, you know, we'll get down to that one equation that rules them all. 
Um, that doesn't mean that we will. It doesn't mean that we will, right? We don't even know whether it's possible. You know, from my readings of philosophy, there's a lot of discussion about is it even possible to have a theory of everything? Like, is it possible to have a universe that doesn't have one consistent rule? And you might think, well, that's crazy. That's bonkers. Like, what are you even talking about? Um, there's a great series of philosophy articles by Nancy Cartwright. She's at Stanford, and she promotes this view of the dappled world that says that laws of physics and science can describe a few situations that we can control in experiments, but that between them, you know, things are kind of crazy and chaotic and might not even follow laws. Like, you know, take, for example, her, her, her great example is take like a coin. You drop a coin. Can you describe what happens to it? Sure. No problem. Like F equals MA falls down. No big deal. All right. Now replace the coin with um, a dollar bill. Can you describe what happens to a dollar bill as you fall it? Well, it's already like a lot more complicated. It falls, it twirls. It's very light influenced by currents. There's all sorts of complicated stuff, but you might imagine somebody out there is a computer powerful enough to describe it. Okay. Now take, put like a hundred of those dollar bills and put it in a tornado, right? Or even just like a crazy windstorm. Like it's way too complicated for anybody to describe. And what that means is that there's lots of places in the world that we've never tested our laws. Like is that crazy windstorm of dollar bills actually following laws just too complicated for us to, to understand and predict? Or is it not actually following some laws? Is it possible that the universe follows laws in certain circumstances, like you were saying, for quantum particles and separately for baseballs, but that in between, you know, there are gaps. We sort of imagine and assume that there's a holistic theory of the universe out there that can describe everything. But it might be that there isn't. It might be that that's just an assumption we've made because that's been sort of our experience so far and we're extrapolating and it doesn't mean that we're always going to. You know, like extrapolation sometimes works, but not always. You know, if a kid is saying like, oh, I've grown two inches every year for the last five years. Therefore, by the time I'm 80, I'm going to be 100, and, you know, 100 feet tall. It's nonsense, right? Things change. So it might be that like you can do it to a certain point. You can explain this and you can explain that, but you might never be able to fit it all together into a holistic theory of everything. It might just be impossible. Or it might be that we're going down the wrong path and that there's like another way to do this that makes it all easier. You know, which the METs they, will come along and tell us. Like you said. Yes, yes. And, <laughs> you know, I know aliens is like a hilarious joke and most people dismiss it and stuff. And this is not like connected to UAPs and, uh, you know, disclosure and all that kind of stuff. But philosophically, it would be fascinating to talk to scientific aliens because it would answer so many questions like, do they use math to describe their 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 science? Do they even do science? What progress have they made? What things have they figured out? Have they made the same mistakes that we've made? Or have they taken a completely separate path and figured out a bunch of stuff that we haven't even thought about? Would we even be interested in the science they do? Or is it all about like, you know, cyclones on gas giants and we're like yawn? Um, I think we would learn so much about, about the nature of our sort of parochial way of thinking by getting a different experience. Sort of lost that opportunity here on earth, you know? You were saying earlier something I really love, which is, you know, Mayans had astronomy and the Chinese had astronomy and the Egyptians had astronomy, all very, very different ways of looking at the sky. Imagine if instead of having some well, like one sort of global scientific viewpoint, 
those cultures had remained and stayed separate and evolved separately. We had like modern Mayan astronomy, modern Egyptian astronomy, modern Chinese astronomy that had a chance to develop to modernity to today. Um, and not just like, you know, Western astronomy. What would they have been like? Would they all gotten to the same place? Or would they have started from completely different ways of thinking and expressing themselves and ended up with like shockingly weird, you know, soup for breakfast kind of ideas? We'll never know because we have sort of like a single homogenous um, earth-based view of how this stuff works. So that's why I'm excited to like, well, let's talk to the aliens because we haven't like polluted them <laughs> with our way of thinking um, about the way the universe works. So philosophically, we'd learn a lot if we talk to aliens about science. Okay, so that brings me to a very interesting question because there's a lot of people out there that do claim, I'm already talking to aliens. <laughs> I'm already talking to extraterrestrials. They're just channeling it. Yeah. So when you see that and you haven't, like actually seeing the extraterrestrials, how do you take those kind of uh, inquiries? Like they may mm -hmm. come along and say, this is what I got. Do you yeah. take that seriously? Are you just like, nah? At what point do you think science can take seriously what people are saying are from extraterrestrials? Because as someone, if you go back to a lot of my first podcasts, I found it really interesting, the science that was given in one of these esoteric books. And, um, you know, I'm not super into it now, but it's really interesting. Like mm -hmm. in, I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. The in the in the book, the Law of One, they talked about how uh, Dewey Larson's theory of the universe. Have you heard of Dewey Larson? Mm -hmm. Okay, so they said that his reciprocal system is correct, and that there's the three dimensions of space, one dimension of time, and then there's the opposite. You know, that's why it's called reciprocal system of theory, right? And so, how <laughs> I know this is kind of a weird question, but what do you think about things like that where we receive it from like so-called channeled sources? Cause there can be a lot of BS in there, but do we even take it seriously at all? Or do we just kind of throw out the, throw it all out? Cause it's from extraterrestrials. Cause that's what it is. <laughs> that's what it's claimed to be. You know, this is a question I've been thinking about for three years, by the awesome. way. So I'm, I would love to hear. Awesome. Well, you know, first of all, on like, should you believe something um, because somebody said it came from an extraterrestrial I think you should not not believe it because it came from an extraterrestrial. Like if somebody smoked opium and had a vision and came up with a theory of everything and it worked, I wouldn't really care if they'd smoked opium or not or banana peels or meditated or, you know, whatever. If you came up with a great idea, if you think, you know, Jesus gave it to you or the extraterrestrials or whatever, I don't care. We can evaluate it for what it is because it does this work. Uh, does it predict things? So it doesn't really matter. Like, and, and people have all sorts of ways of being creative. You know, I pace around the hallways and come up with ideas. Other people I know, like in physics, do smoke a lot of weed to come up with ideas. Like, <laughs> it's fine. Like, the human yeah. creative process is very strange and nobody really knows, like, what it takes to come up with a new idea, have a moment of insight or whatever. So wherever you get your ideas is cool if you can test them, you know, on their own merits. You shouldn't believe something because somebody told you I got it from ETs. But you can also test it and say, hey, if this really is a theory of everything, it should do a certain thing. It should answer certain questions. Mm -hmm. um, and or so, just science, not even just theories of everything, but just yeah, science, you know. Any scientific idea. It doesn't really matter where you got it um, as long as it works, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel the same way about stories about people's extraterrestrial experience. And there's lots of them out there. You know, Nick Lazar says that he 
um, went to Area 51 and saw alien spacecraft and people reverse engineering anti-gravity propulsion. Bob Lazar, thank you, yes. Mm -hmm. um, anti-gravity propulsion mechanisms and, and Element 115. And like, he tells a great story. It's compelling. I love it. Um, because I want it to be true. I want the aliens to be here. I want to learn about the repulsion systems. I want to meet them. I want to talk to them. I want to know them. I am like ready to believe. But what Bob Lazar presents, what a lot of these people present, fundamentally is just a story. Like it's words that they say. And I can't evaluate it without the evidence behind it. Like on just on the surface of the words, I'm like, that's a cool story. So Star Wars. Star Wars is a cool story. You know, um, He's yeah. claiming it's real, but how do I really know? In order to ask, like, what would it take? Well, either, you know, he needs to, like, have some crazy insight that wouldn't be possible otherwise. He's like, a theory of everything, you know, or some physical evidence, right? That's what we need, really, is a way to test these stories. It's like, all right, where's the craft or where's the thing or where's the bit? And independent scientists can look at it and say, okay, yeah, this really looks like an alien corpse or it really looks like extraterrestrial technology or whatever. It can't just be a story. It's got to be able to something that we can independently evaluate because the, the threshold is just too high. You know, it's too easy for people to come up with stories. And that doesn't mean... It's true. That, it doesn't mean that the people out there with stories are lying. People can be sincerely conveying their experience. It doesn't mean it actually happened also, right? There's an important distinction there. People don't have to be like lying and manipulating you. They can believe these things, even if they didn't actually happen to them. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of different ways I could go with that. I guess the first thing is that I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of times where there might be evidence, but there might be a, a reason why we're not seeing it. Like there's a, a force that might come in and say, like, for example, why can't we see the original Roswell stuff that happened? It just kind of all disappeared. I'm just speculating. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's very interesting how sometimes... People say there is evidence and then mm -hmm. it's just gone or they are mm -hmm. gone. And it's like very weird circumstances where I feel like in an open world where it's like, hey, we came up with this invention. Okay, let's see it. It's, yeah. It doesn't seem to be the world is in an environment that is specifically welcoming um, or systemically welcoming for these new ideas. But that's just something that I, I was thinking about. But I, I also, totally agree. And like, if you look at the history of what the U.S. government has done, it's like, it's been secretive and they've lied and they've, you know, definitely covered stuff up. And so they have very little credibility, uh, unfortunately. Um, yeah. So that's why it's hard when you have these hard. things, because we might yeah. not even be able to see the actual evidence that they had or mm -hmm. that they claim to have, because you can't mm -hmm. just go there and be like, Hey, it's here because there's forces that say, nah, you can't. Yeah. Uh, but Which is why transparency is always a good idea. Like openness yeah. and transparency is definitely the best policy. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I've talked about this theory in the law of one where they have the seven densities and that's how they see like the, I don't know if you've heard about this, but basically how it works is that they say that the universe is split into seven major densities, kind of like a piano. There's seven mm -hmm. major notes or, you know, how music works. And so they say that, okay, well, first density is the elements. Second density is like plants and growth and things like that. And then there's third density, which is humans. And that they, they split the world into vibrational thresholds, pretty much. And I'm just curious, because I'm not sure if particle physics says anything about this, but, but could that be possible that there's higher densities that 
we can't experience because of the vibrational difference or that type of thing? Is that possible or is that kind of nonsense? Well, it's sort of nonsense adjacent. I mean, there is definitely a lot of truth to like thinking about the universe in terms of vibrations. What we have learned in particle physics is that our best description of the universe at like the fundamental level, as far as we can go, at least, we don't think it's really fundamental, is that the universe is space, which has quantum fields in it. And those fields oscillate. They wiggle, right? It's sort of amazing. But like the mathematics of quantum fields is the same as the mathematics of a guitar string or ocean waves or any kind of waves. Like waves do seem to be this incredible thing which exists mathematically in so many different scenarios. It feels pretty deep, right? So the very, very small scale stuff is wiggling and following wave equations. So the big scale stuff is wiggling. Like, you know, galaxies. You know how galaxies have arms, right? You look at a galaxy, it's got these arms. Those arms are not structures. It's not like a star is moving that's made of stars and those stars are moving all together like the way your arm does. Those are waves. They're density waves in a galaxy. So waves are everywhere in the universe. So from that point of view, yeah, everything is vibrations. From yeah, But that doesn't mean that like everything you say about vibrations has meaning, right? So you can mm-hmm. like break things up. And just because things are vibrations doesn't mean that, um, you know, um, doesn't really mean that much. It just means that like the physics of it is this interesting mathematics. Can you break up the universe into various vibrations? Like we think that there are various quantum fields. You know, there's like the electromagnetic field and the weak force field and the strong force field um, and fields for all the other particles. And there's definitely some of those that we can sense, like we can sense electrons and some of those that we can't, like neutrinos. We can't sense neutrinos. They're everywhere. Like you hold out your hand, there's like a hundred billion neutrinos passing through each of your fingernails every second. There's an incredible number of particles. You don't sense them at all. So like there's lots of the world that's invisible to us and is vibrating. Like those neutrinos are little ripples in a neutrino field that we definitely cannot sense. Um, I don't know what you gain necessarily from thinking about it in terms of vibrations. Um, I guess what you would gain would be people think uh, the the kind of theory goes that, well, the higher density beings, like even that we could say extraterrestrials, exist in a higher density. So mm-hmm. therefore, like the uh, the conclusion is, is that we can't see them, which is why it would make sense, like the Fermi paradox. Like, why mm. can we not? Where are they? Mm. And yeah. so then it's like, well, we can't see them because they're vibrating at a frequency that's outside of our spectrum of awareness. So mm. I guess that would be the overarching reason why you could explain some of these things that seem unexplainable. But yeah, I'm at this place where it could be true, could be not. I've always found it fascinating and it kind of intuitively made sense to me. You know, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, I would say differently, but I think it sounds very similar. You know, for example, most of the stuff that's out there in the universe is stuff we cannot see. Dark matter, for example. What is dark matter doing? We know that it's not generating light, but it could be generating a different kind of light. We call these dark photons. And it could be that dark matter has its whole different like universe, basically. I mean, not literally that it's another universe, but it's sort of like it in that maybe you can do all sorts of interactions and there's dark chemistry and dark biology even. Potentially there's like beings made of dark matter that can't see us and we can't see them. Not because we're not vibrating at the right frequency, but because it's a fundamentally a different kind of vibration. The way that like, you know, different particles are different. Electrons are different from muons. Maybe there's another kind of light out there that we can't see. 
and that aliens can use to talk to each other. And that and and remember that we're unusual, right? Our kind of stuff in the universe, our kind of matter, is five percent of the energy of the universe. So maybe we're the weird ones, and there's all sorts of weird dark matter aliens out there having a great time and wondering, you know, uh, if we're out here. Um, so from that point of view, there's a lot of the universe that we can't sense, um, and things, everything out there is definitely vibrating for sure. Hmm. Okay. So I know there's a lot of people that are interested in what you do and interested in physics and particle physics in general. If you were in the position of, let's say you were coming out of high school right now, or if you were, you know, a younger, the younger generation coming up, what would be some advice you'd give to people on where they can start do you think it's a good idea to go to school for this? Do you think mm. it's a, should you just, since we're in kind of the technological age, it kind of changes things and not just for mm. younger people, but a lot of the older audience too is becoming more interested in, okay, well, what is the science? What is physics? What is this? Yeah. And so maybe it's different your advice you would give young people who have that opportunity, but maybe someone's also 40 and they're like, oh, I really want to, this feels really interesting to me now. Do I study online? Do I go to school? Because... You know, it's a very interesting question that I've also asked myself. So what are, you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you for asking it. I would encourage anybody out there, number one, to figure out what it is that's driving their interest. You know, what are your questions about the universe? Imagine this hypothetical. You get to speak to aliens or the Oracle or God or whatever you believe in, and you get to ask them one question and you're going to get an answer. What's your question? What is your question? Like, to me, I know what my question is. And that's what I'm spending my life trying to figure out. But it took me a while to figure out what my question was. I tried plasma physics. I tried condensed matter physics. I tried all sorts of various stuff. And it didn't really click for me until I found particle physics. And I was like, this is the thing for me. Oh, my God, I love this stuff. And it's very personal. You know, some people are going to be fascinated by these questions, other people by other questions. And so you got to find it for yourself. And I think a valuable thing is going to school, but a valuable thing is also not going to school and living your life and like learning how to listen to yourself um, and figure out like who you are and what it is you want. Now, if, if you've already figured out that like physics is the thing and you want to answer these questions, um, then you should definitely go to school for it and, and get some experience, you know, also learn the language almost right. Learn the language and also learn what it's like, you know, because day to day, for example, in my job, I'm not discovering new particles. <laughs> That's pretty rare. Day to day, what am I doing? Like I write computer programs to analyze data and to teach artificial intelligence to help me analyze it. I think that's fun. Other people would find it really boring. Oh my God, you sit in front of a computer all day and write programs, yawn. But for me, it's, it's wonderful. It's little mental puzzles. And a lot of times you have to try a few things to figure this out. So try and go and get some experience doing the kind of research you imagine might be the thing you want to do. And um, on our podcast, we have lots of people who write in and say, I'm 35 and I'm a software programmer, but I really wanted to do physics, but my parents wouldn't let me. Is it too late? And the answer is no, it's never too late. You can always go back and join the community. Now, if you're young and you're about to go to college, you have lots of opportunities because college is this kind of place to figure this stuff out. If you're older, it can be harder, but there's still our paths, you know, take some courses at a community college at night. Figure out if this is really your kind of stuff. And there's one thing to like, oh, I'm listening to a physics podcast and it sounds cool to like, I actually want to learn the language and the mathematics and go through this process. But there is a path there and take some classes at a community college. You can also go and 
um, take classes at you know your local university, even at a higher level, like junior, senior level classes, quantum mechanics. Often you can sign up at a university to take these classes, and not as like an, an enrolled student, just like take the class and get the credit for it. Um, you don't actually need like a degree from most universities to get into physics. Like you want to go to graduate school in physics, you need to have shown that you understand the basics. So you can just go to a university and take those classes if you already have like a degree in something else. And one of my most successful students did this. He was 35. He was working for some cybersecurity company. And he came to me and said, look, I, I have this job, but I think it's really boring. I wish I was a physicist. And he came and he started taking these classes and he signed up at UCI where you can like enroll to take these classes without like applying for admission. You might think like, oh, I'll never get into some university. You don't have to get in. You just have to take the classes. And then he applied to graduate school. He did some research with me and he applied to graduate school. And he's about to get his PhD from like an Ivy League university and launch off on an amazing research career and be a professor somewhere. Totally possible at any age. You got to listen to what your questions are, but there's definitely paths into physics research. And you could also just do it all on your own, you know, just go meditate in the desert and have inspiration. But there's going to be a bigger <laughs> hurdle there, right? Because then you're going to have to translate these ideas into the, the ideas of the community. And in the end, science is by people, for people, and of people. It's not really satisfying to get these ideas and just keep them to yourself. You want people to understand them and to read them. It's like writing a book. You don't want to write a book and then just like bury it in the ground. You want readers. In the same sense, if you want to do science and have people appreciate it, you have to talk to them about it. So, you know, you have to be able to learn to speak the language of the community if you want people to understand what you're doing. All right. One more question for you. So let's say that you finally met those extraterrestrials. They came in and they took you up. They're like, all right, man, you've done enough here. You know, it's your time to go. You're coming with us. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, man, this is the last time I get to talk to humans. And if you had one message that you could leave people with, it could be a quote, it could be a sentence, it could be a theory, it could be uh, a whole dissertation. What is, what is the one thing you'd, you'd want people to know about uh, really whatever you think is the most important? Wow. What would I want most people to know as I depart the earth to go travel the galaxy with aliens? <laughs> right. Definitely not a question I'm prepared for or ever That's thought about. That's good. I, I'm glad. Hopefully. Because <laughs> I want the honesty. I'm just curious, like off the top of your head, you know? Um, yeah, off the top of my head, I think I would say follow your joy. You know, um, there's so many different paths you can go on in life and so many of them are frustrating. And I feel like a lot of people these days swim towards the frustration and the anger. And I feel like you only have a short time on this planet and you should be doing the things that you like. So figure out who you are and what you love and follow your joy. That's what I'm trying to do in my life. And there it is. All right, man. Thanks for coming on today. Where can people find you? What do you got going on? Anything you want to share with people right now? Yeah, I got a podcast called Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, where we break down all these ideas of physics in ways that people can understand and make a lot of silly jokes. Um, and you can find it everywhere podcasts are found. And we've got a website, danielandjorge.com. It's together with my good friend, Jorge Cham, who's the genius behind PhD Comics. So come check us out. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. Thanks Peace. very much, Nick.